Hey, DTC pod, it's time to let your customers enjoy the products they love without the friction of reordering. That's why the world's most innovative brands like Pete's Coffee and Il Maquillage rely on order group subscriptions to build long-lasting customer relationships and recurring revenue. Easy to manage and seamless for shoppers, OrderGroove comes with the tools your business needs to become the next big subscription success story. Visit ordergroove.com slash DTCpod today to receive two months off your first contract. Again, that's ordergroove.com slash DTCpod. Also, are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no-obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. So we're really excited to have Caroline McCarthy on today on the D2C pod. Caroline, why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about you guys and, and Starday and what you guys are up to there. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Caroline. I'm one of the co-founders of Starday. Starday is, you could call it essentially a, the parent brand. Um, we use a data-driven approach to understand areas in the market, in the food market, where we think there's opportunity for a new or innovative brand or product based on ingredients and trends that we're seeing in our data model, and then uh, build and launch and scale those brands pretty quickly. So we launched in August with our seed funding and the announcement of our first brand, Gooey, which is a chocolate hazelnut spread, and then launched our second product or second brand, I should say, which is All Day Flavors, a line of seasoning blends in November, and we'll be launching three or four more brands in the next year. Yeah. So Caroline, what I think is really interesting about your story and why we're so excited to have you on is because you're kind of running a different approach to most brands that may only be focusing on one brand and launching up right away. So right off the bat, I know you mentioned you guys are already at two brands, which is Gooey and All Day, and then you're already in the process of scaling up more. So why don't you talk me through the first one? What was it like what was it like launching that? What was the inspiration for Gooey specifically? And then maybe we can get on to um, you know, the other ones and the ones you have cooking down the pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. So talking about Gooey, um, one of the things that is really important to our model is we have a what I call like an in-house data engine that we've built um, that parses through third and first party data signals to help us understand where we think that there are gaps in the market um, based on either existing or existing but not or not popular foods that we think we could build a really strong brand and product around that also is able to meet sustainability principles and also frankly something that we think will taste good we don't want to make you know a healthy product that no one actually wants to eat so with gooey uh without going like into too many of the details of the data model because i don't want to bore everyone but we saw a fair amount of signal around a couple different attributes low sugar being one dairy free being another sustainable eco-friendly plant-based in some capacity as well. And at the same time, we were also seeing a lot of signals around people looking for comfort foods, a nostalgic aspect to them, um, areas where, you know, obviously as we had all been sitting in our apartments for the past two and a half years, it's no surprise that nostalgic foods were obviously popping up, but we also saw this as a trend line that was not going to go away anytime soon. And so that's where the idea for Gooey came. It doesn't hurt that Nestle and Nutella and all the other brands that sort of make these large chocolate spreads are not exactly known for bringing consumer-friendly and environmentally-friendly products to market. Um, so we sort of knew where we were going to be fitting in as well. 
And then we worked really closely with our design team, our design consultants, Outdoor Cats, headed up by Camille Baldwin, who formerly led brand at Gin Lane and Pattern, and created this pretty data-driven approach to developing brand. They sort of brought the art, and we took our existing data model and sort of used it to parse through signals to develop that brand as well and brought a little bit of science to it. So we launched GUI in August and launched DTC first, then pushed into Amazon, um, and then you know, have some exciting retail news coming up in the next few weeks. And then, like you said, launch our second brand in November. Yeah, one thing that really jumped out at me when, when we were talking is how you go through and decide what brands are of interest. And I know, you know, you guys are looking for all different signals in the market. So how did you get thinking like that, right? Because it seems almost contrary to the way a lot of people jump into brands. Maybe they're like, good. Maybe they're like, ooh, I just love this product and I want to create a brand around this. And then they get really far down the line before they have to take a U-turn or pivot or do something. So what was your inspiration and how did you really think about almost taking the opposite approach and validating before you build? It's a great question. I think... um especially in the food world, I think similar to what you're saying, there's often a really strong founder story behind a, a product that is really spoken to people. And I say this as someone with a, with a nut allergy, I've always been very passionate about creating a nut-free cookie brand. It will happen one day, I swear. But the idea was to take a little bit of that sort of emotion out of it and sort of actually be like, okay, what is a wider swath of consumers want? Because the idea behind our products is that they should really be mass market. We're not trying to be in a really niche group. We're not trying to be sort of only, and I say this with all love for our DTC community, we're not trying to just be a product that is sort of tweeted at each other on the interwebs about how good it is. We want, you know, and I say this from the Midwest, I would, you know, want all my friends here to be able to enjoy it. We want moms in Indianapolis and dads in Missouri and folks, you know, kids that are coming from Oklahoma to be able to enjoy. And so part of that plays into it as well as when we're looking at these products and the different data is do we think we can actually build a product that's going to appeal to a larger mass of humans? Is this something where when we talk about going into retail, we're saying we can talk to Kroger, we can talk to Target, or is this really a product that would only make sense at an Air One or a Whole Foods? If it's latter case, those are, there are plenty of amazing brands that are being developed and incredibly successful in that sort of arena. It's just not the one that we're trying to, the approach that we're trying to take. So I think um, that data-driven approach applies obviously not just into what we're, the trends that we're seeing, but also who we think is going to be responsive to those trends and where we think that trend line is going. And the third, I think I mentioned earlier is, can we make a good product? Um, One of my co-founders, Lena, is a three-star trained Michelin chef and just unbelievable at crafting and formulation and all of the amazing food things that I know nothing about. Um, you know, she ran research and development, at the French laundry group. There's no way she's going to make a product that's not amazing. And so sometimes we look at form factors and data points and she has to remind us, you know what, the reason that there's no good product in the market is because it doesn't taste good. And that is sometimes the data point that we just have to take into consideration. So I would say there's a fair amount that goes into it. One thing that does kind of play into some of the, a little bit of the founder passion story is building this stuff is hard and it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of long nights. And if you are not creating and selling a product that you feel really good about, it's I think difficult to maintain that energy. And so every time that we are thinking about creating a product or a brand, we, we all need to be bought in. We all need to feel like we're going to be able to do this justice. And frankly, we all want to be able to eat it as well. So 
one question I really have about how, because your model is very unique, right? I think most people when they're starting, they're just launching one brand and it's hard enough to manage one brand. So how are you able to stay focused, you know, growing these different audiences? Are these audiences across brands that know they're related? So you're building a brand presence in multiple product lines. Um, Cause it seems very different in terms of building separate brands as opposed to building one brand that offers separate products, right? Can you talk a little bit to me about that and what the ideation is behind actually launching these individual brands as opposed to creating one brand and separating them as products? Yeah, absolutely. So I oversee all aspects related to growth and marketing. So as you can imagine, I spend a lot of time thinking about our brands and sort of the efficiencies that we can find between them. I would say first, we've maintained similar consumer demographics between our first two brands and expect to do so, you know, in the future. So we are, um, it's not just in terms of like the cross branding opportunities, but also in terms of how we are understanding our own data, we're not starting from scratch every time. And that's something that's really important and, and does go back into how we choose our products as well, back to that sort of consumer demographic that we're looking at. If we launch our third brand and we are talking to a completely different type of audience or consumer, that's a whole lot of work and learnings that we are going to have to start from from scratch, really. And I would prefer to sleep at night. So I <laughs> would like to actually be able to learn from our last brand launches. The second part, I think, on focus is something that is a little bit more um, about the team that's in place at this stage than it is about business strategy. And the reason I say that is because there are plenty of people who want to do really deep work on one brand, and that is where they are at their best. And if that is a completely valid and strong point to take, we happen to have folks that are enjoy being across brands, enjoy having every day look a little different, enjoy having um, sort of a different challenge on one brand than another. And so I think because we are such a small lean team, we did come together a little bit with these mixture of strengths that have allowed us to be able to focus on what needs to be done and then also take a little bit of joy and sort of the, the fun part of just, you get to launch a bunch of brands and you get to create new designs and new brand identities. And that part of it is Yes, it's a lot of work. Uh, we have great partners, great team, and it's frankly just fun. It's fun to not uh, have as much stress on one brand. You know, if we're like, you know what, we launched and it wasn't that great and we will learn this for next time. We've got four more brands to go at it. And so there, there's just a little bit of an element of joy, honestly, and having a little bit of a de-risk situation with our launches where we're not spending tons and tons of money and tons of seating opportunities and influencers. And not to say we will never do that. There may be a launch where we sort of like really go hard in the paint on, you know, some of the more traditional launch tactics, but I've chosen to just focus a little bit more on the fun aspect of it and the joy and being able to learn from our mistakes really quickly. Because when I'm remembering a mistake, it was a mistake I made three months ago, not two and a half years ago. So it's very, very easy to remember like, Caroline, do not do that again. That did not work. I will say, of course, that comes with, you know, some aspects like you, I would be lying if I said that there were no trade-offs. I think there's always going to be trade-offs in, in any strategy that you pick, whether it is, like I said, going very deep on one specific channel, very deep on one specific brand. We're choosing to do multiple brands, multiple channels and get into retail as quickly as possible. Um, and like I said, trade-offs on both. I enjoying the ride on the ladder. And I think that has been a pretty strong sustaining factor for us. 
Well, and I think one advantage about that approach, kind of what you were talking about, about being able to take bets and de-risk and explore different brands, is that if you started one brand for Gooey, which is like a hazelnut cocoa spread, and Fuego, which is like a spice brand, in terms of the brand, both of those products don't quite fit under the same roof. So by being able to explore these different markets and have their own brand, which are going to talk to the consumers, it's going to make a little bit more sense as opposed to, you know, being like, oh, yeah, we're the we hazelnut, hazelnut. Uh, spread and we also make spices. Whereas the, having those own brand, you can speak directly to the consumers yeah. and the, who's buying. Yeah, I think right? that's right. And and I think, um, you know, there are some be situations in, in the near future, frankly, where we're doing product extensions under existing brands um, and which will be purely based on just consumer data and demand, um, whether it's a flavor or a form factor or size. But, you know, to your point about being able to de-risk, it does, it allows us, it's not just de-risking, it's, well, frankly, it is de-risking on an emotional level because like I said, you know, you always have another chance, but really it's de-risking on a financial level. We have a very lean approach to developing and launching. And while that does mean that some of the bells and whistles that come with, you know, a lot of launches in this space, you know, whether it's tons of press coverage or it's tons of seating or it's a big influencer or celebrity founder, whatever it may be, we're not necessarily going to be having that on every launch. Like I said, we might try it out for one or two launches, but we've been able to keep a really lean budget. And so I think that, you know, the efficiency that we have there is something that is also a huge part of allowing us to keep doing this multiple times over because we didn't, you know, go and blow a bunch of money on on launch A, and now we sort of got to wait for revenue to catch up for another six months. Um, so that's been, you know, also as someone that as a growth person, I'm like constantly staring at dollar signs um, and looking for efficiency. So it's been a really lovely way to sort of operate so far. The other thing I wanted to ask you is, what is your background? What were you working on before this? And what what about those roles and that your experience gave you the tools to get excited about these opportunities? So I, my background is not in food at all. <laughs> my background is purely in tech, uh, both consumer and B2B. So started my career at Google on the AdWords side, advising um, high growth. I helped found the, the startup. I was kind of like a startup studio, I suppose, there um, working with clients like ClassPass on marketing strategy, and then was at Slack and built out the performance marketing function there. Slack operated then and still operates, but specifically back then, much more like a consumer company than a B2B company in terms of how we acquired customers. It was very bottoms up. We were driving individual signups, you know, thousands and thousands per day. Um, and so I really got a taste of what a full-scale marketing tech stack um, with a large budget and very, very ambitious goals looks like and absolutely sort of the ride of a lifetime. After that, I was at a data science firm that spent on the Obama campaign working both on the political side and then we had consumer clients as well. And then most recently was running um, growth and a bunch of marketing for a and first marketing hire, I guess, at a bank app called One Finance, which was recently merged into Walmart's uh, fintech unit Hazel um, with Ribbit Capital and is now going to be the, the Walmart bank under the One brand. So everything has been a very software data growth driven aspect, although I've also been lucky to have been exposed to and ran really strategic branding and design initiatives. And so, you know, while I'm not a designer by any means, nor would any of the designers I've managed consider me uh, God's gift <laughs> to design management, I have, you know, been able to sort of see the blend of art and science that has caused brands like Slack and One to be able to grow. Um, and so it's, it's not food, but there's a lot of similarities that I've carried over. And I, 
I certainly, I think where I lack in some of just like the pure F&B experience, I'm, I hopefully think I make up for in the experience that comes from that software world in with the data-driven, the tech stacks, um, sort of the efficiency aspects as well. Uh, so I kind of joked to a lot of my, my friends that are still in tech, like my days don't look that different than they did a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. It's just, I can eat my products now and I certainly cannot eat a mobile app. That's got to be a fun feeling of being able to apply all those skill sets that you've developed to, you know, a new, to new tangible physical products that you can eat, taste, uh, that everyone else can enjoy in a real physical sense. So that's, that's got to be enjoyable. And like you were saying, having that background in performance and growth, understanding what it takes around it to grow a really high performing consumer brand, that's obviously going to translate. So then my next question would be is given your background, what was it like actually like getting started? Like let's break out the mm-hmm. the beginning, beginning of GUI. So you have all these technical skills, um, you know how to run growth, you know how to test, you know how to validate an idea, but in a very literal sense, what do you, like when you were first like, okay, I want to start thinking about CPG, start, want to start working there, want to start, we like the idea for GUI, so then what, right? Yeah, that's a great question. So the four of us came, the four co-founders came together sort of at the beginning of last year and understood the vision that we were trying to build, but wanted, we actually spent like our first one, two months not building. Uh, we spent creating strategy and timelines and some of the slower stuff, which as someone that likes to go on all cylinders at all times, I was, you know, kind of having to sit on my hands about, but we spent a, a lot of, it was incredibly valuable looking back at it because we really haven't pivoted from our initial strategy. I mean, obviously we've learned things along the way we've tweaked, we've changed, but the essence of what we're trying to build, why we're trying to build it with whom we're building it has stayed very consistent my first real foray into like, holy moly, this isn't Kansas anymore was honestly learning about supply chain. You know, you can control, like I cannot Jira ticket <laughs> my jars off a boat <laughs> at the port outside of California. Like you just, you have no control. And that is not something in software. Like there are very few things that, you, get, you know, there are always bugs and things like that, but there are very few things that you have absolutely no control over. So that was my first real, I had grown up around food. My mom is like an incredible, you know, home chef. I was more familiar with ingredients and things like that and formulation. Although I certainly never had seen it at the level and scale that, that Lena does, but it wasn't until I got to supply chain and ops, um, where I was like, man, those shipping costs are wild there. And that's not, you know, in the growth world, we Again, we can't control CPMs, but we can control our budgets. We can control our CTRs to an extent. Like we are doing our data testing, all the things you already mentioned about that. There is uh, nothing I could do. I found myself, I was supporting on ops, uh, particularly before launch, before we hired a director of ops. And then also, you know, just because it's uh, my co-founder, Chaz, who is our CEO and runs our bunch of our supply chain and, and ops, you know, obviously it's not a one-man show to get all that done. So I I learned a lot pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, you find yourself calling suppliers on Saturday morning because that's the only time they can talk and they've got a bag of cocoa somewhere that got lost off a pallet. So I think that part was all very, <laughs> very humbling coming out of the tech world. Say the second, you know, I had never touched Shopify. I consider myself, I'm, you know, in completely being not humble at all. I'm very good at marketing technology. There are very few platforms that I cannot figure out, but I had not been in Shopify before. And so... There I was, you know, leading growth, 
with my first login to Shopify, you know, as a venture capital backed company. And I was like, all right, this is a humbling moment. One of many, but that would certainly sticks out uh, to me as like being a key, a key just, you know, here we go. Now I live in Shopify. I could probably explain Shopify with my eyes closed and shout out Shopify. It's incredibly user-friendly. They do an excellent job and it was not very difficult to learn, but you know, we had talked about all these grand plans for our DTC growth and then our Amazon growth. Had I, I had never logged into Amazon Seller Central. So there was a lot of learning curves that I definitely had to had to take on. And it was really my experience in past marketing tech stacks and growth and data, having created customer data platforms before and things like that, um, that would allowed me to probably get a hang of things a little bit faster. Um, but it certainly was not, I was not coming in as, you know, my buddy Nick Sharma over there, DTC expert, setting up all the things. Like, that was not me. <laughs> I think, you know, one of my learnings, though, is, you know, everyone can do it. Like, it, I think a lot of these things sound more complex than they are. And with the right team or the right partners, I think you can figure it out. Those were the two biggest moments the shocks, where I was the, like, the, all right. The supply <laughs> chain understanding that, oh, this isn't just a bug I can troubleshoot. And then also... Shopify again. It's a whole new ecosystem for yeah, absolutely. for you. The Shopify uh, apps, the partners, all of that stuff, all brand new to me. And so, and definitely, and something also. Whether it was, I just really wanted to learn on my own. So uh, we did not bring in consultants on that or anything. You know, I just sort of hunkered down and, and figured it out. And so far, I haven't broken anything. But you know, stay tuned. You know, that's what we see too. And and Shopify, I think it's so amazing because it does provide that, you know, that foundational element that people in the DDC space can like work out of. And if you're coming from tech, that's not the data model that you've worked out of. And you're like, okay, this isn't my database. This isn't my internal admin tool. Like, I don't know how this works. But then once you get the hang of it, you're like, okay, this is the hub for my business. And now I can plug in all these other things here to get everything stood up. So that's really cool. And then I know you mentioned you guys are venture backed. And I know for our listeners, there's so many different types of scenarios, right? You have people who are starting just by bootstrapping and they, you know, they start out of their kitchen, they start their first order and then they scale up. Or there's people that we've had on the show and that we've, sp- we've spoken to as well that are venture backed and are really looking to scale things up. So I know you guys, you had mentioned you are venture backed. So had you guys made any product before raising? Like at what point did you raise and what did that process kind of look like? And what was the you know, I, I think I have a good understanding. And I'm sure our listeners have a good understanding that your value prop is that you're almost able to create this CPG studio out of which you can launch all these different brands. And there's a lot of upside there. So that becomes a very nice investable opportunity. But, you know, what was it like when you were out there fundraising for this project? And at what stage were you when you when you actually went to raise? Yeah. So as I say, we fundraise on a deck and a dream and the team. And that, you know, while I'm, you know, that's pretty much what it was like to your point, you know, what folks were investing in is, is the platform that we're building. I, the brands, while I love them deeply and I'm very, you know, fond of them, obviously, because I spend all day thinking about them. They're really the product of the platform and the data models and the process and the strategy and the technology that we're building and sort of it's that approach. And then also having the right team members in place, um, that, was what folks were investing in the products themselves. Obviously that's where the revenue comes from and certainly where, you know, where we're building our retail strategy around and things like that. But it really it is the outcome of a greater strategy and process and approach. And so that was the stage at which we raised. I will also say we are very lucky to have investors that very much understood this um, from the get-go, equal ventures and slow ventures who co-led around both have been massive champions of ours the entire time. And so 
there's no fundraising process that is simple or easy. And I, as Chaz, who got COVID in the middle of it and was, you know, had many sleepless nights would attest to, it was, you know, there's always ups and downs. But I think ultimately we were able to raise successfully and with great investors on the the vision that we were trying to build and that strategy. That said, I also realized it's not a very common approach. And it's also one that, you know, I feel to a certain extent we were very lucky to have been in the right place at the right time. And there are plenty of more traditional, I mean, we raised really from more tech type investors um, and traditional F&B investors maybe would have really been waiting for specific retail data, certainly a product and market. And so at the time that we raised and how we raised, I think is you do have to require a certain type of mindset on the investor side in order for them to see that vision and understand where those returns are coming from. So you know, I give massive kudos to those that are sort of, like you said, starting in, in the kitchen with, with their first product. That is where my nut-free cookie brand will come from one day. And I think there are pros and cons to each approach. The one that we took, you know, really was just based on that initial strategic vision and then sort of the confidence that they felt that we could execute and bring that forward. When you're raising, like, you need to be able to tell a unique story. And what jumped out at me initially was like, I haven't seen any of these you know, studios launching multiple brands. So like as an investor, if, you know, for any of anyone who's listening and launching a brand, clearly, I think a big takeaway here is like you guys were doing something that was uniquely different from all the other D2C CPG brands that are launching. And that probably put you in a good position to raise early capital, right? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, we bristle at the word studio because it feels like it doesn't speak to our full data platform yet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's also, we, we set really ambitious goals when we raised in terms of what we were going to accomplish. And like I said, a couple sleep is nice, but we've we've met them. And I think being able to instill confidence in, in your investors, you know, they're putting themselves on the line just as much as you are in many ways. And being able to show up and do what you said you were going to do is something that I think is huge. And we, in some ways, with this many launches and, and the having committed to doing certain things, um, it allows us to form closer relationships in some ways with our investors because there's always a brand to give feedback on. There's always an, a product idea to sort of bounce off. There's um, We're not sort of sitting on the sidelines, like waiting. And then like two years later, we come back asking for more money. It's, you know, we're really, there's always something new to talk about. And so I think because of that, we've been able to blend their perspective, our perspective, and then also bring in some of those folks that are more traditional F&B that have that perspective of, hey, when you're in retail, like, here's what you need to do, run these type of TPRs, don't work with that vendor, like, make sure that you have shippers in by, you know, P6, like, there's all these things that um, folks on the more traditional F&B side bring in. And while that may be our first initial strategic vision might not have been in when they were investing or partnering with us, you know, we're now starting to look for support, you know, from folks like that, that have the ability to help us not make mistakes when we go into retail. Um, so, and then my next question is, so after you raise the funding, what's the first thing you do? I know you talked a little bit about like dealing with figuring out Shopify supply chain, that sort of stuff, but from a physical sense, like how much inventory um, were you ordering in your first batch? And like, how were you selling your first grouping of, uh, you launched GUI yeah. first, right? Yeah, we launched GUI first. Yeah, yeah. so what, what, why, why don't yeah. you walk us through a little bit about just that, that first, like, where really the rubber meets the road. You have capital. You're starting to put it to work. You're yeah. coming up with a product. What, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I mentioned how we have learnings from each brand, right? <laughs> this was a good one. Um, we, with 
again, back to that sort of a, a capital efficiency thing, we were playing in this world of like, we're not going to overpay for inventory ahead of time, because we want to be able to sort of produce as we go, and manage according to costs and margin and make sure that we're constantly adjusting. That sounds really great, and is great if it works out. Does not sound so great in the middle of COVID when there's crises at the plants, folks aren't able to come into work because of COVID, you know, there's delays in shipping times. I think that's a strategy we will go back to when things sort of settle down. But for our second brand, we purchase a lot more inventory ahead of time, um, just to make sure that we were not getting into any sort of situation where we were experiencing, you know, any shortages or out of stock situations. We also, because we're working really with shelf stable products, we don't have to worry about expiration dates. So we are able to purchase inventory ahead of time that and know that we'll still be able to sell it and we'll still be good. Obviously, everything has you know some sort of expiration date, but it's not like we're working with sort of a fresh product or even a frozen product to some extent where we need to worry about if, you know, if we don't sell this inventory by X date, then it goes to waste. That's not as much of a concern. That said, you know, obviously, we would love to not have to purchase a ton of inventory ahead of time. However, because we've de-risked sort of our launch by having validated the product on so much testing and validation ahead of time, and then, you know, having run through so many different um, different versions of consumer feedback, both across the brand and the product and the packaging, we feel really confident about purchasing the inventory because we know that we can sell. So that's it's a little bit of a give and take, but I would definitely say the first time it had, it sounded like a really great strategy on paper. And then, you know, when you've sold out of, of your first product two weeks after launch and you're like, oh, When's the next production run? You know, we rejiggered a bit the second time around. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D dot io slash podcast and look for the slack community link to claim your invite we hope to see you on there why don't you walk me through the, that like first batch of saying like who are you going to were you was it strictly d2c at that time or were you um like live with any like smaller batch retailers or were you saying like let's start d2c we started d2c so the way that we're viewing d2c platforms is both is a place to build our brand obviously do revenue, but build our brand, run tests, data capture, get insights. I think, you know, in an increasingly digital, I mean, increasingly, we're like the most digital thing possible at this point, but, you know, everyone looks for brand online, whether or not you purchase it online is a different question and whether or not that's where you should be purchasing it is, you know, sort of to the side here, but we launch DTC as that place where we can say, all right, here's where I'm going to go. We're going to run a bunch of our growth tests. We're going to do site testing. We're going to do pricing tests. We're going to do free shipping, threshold testing. And most importantly, we're going to build the relationships with our consumers. And then the next step is sort of expanding to Amazon. So you get like one step out, right? Like you still have some consumer data, but like you don't own that data. Amazon owns that data. And then the third step is really going into retail. Where we haven't explored as much so far is sort of on that marketplace. Uh, so the Thrives, the GoPuffs, things like that. So that's probably an area that we'll continue to explore if sort of the economics makes sense. But in the beginning, for every one of our launches, we are going direct to consumer first. I don't see that changing at any point. And we'll sort of continue to layer in those additional levels of retail and go to market strategy in the coming months. That's a, another 
part of our strategy is getting into retail as soon as possible. And so we are constantly having those conversations even before launch with potential retail partners. Yeah. And I think one thing that's so cool about that is just how, like, I love your thought process about how you're approaching it. And I think that's something that a lot of people listening who are thinking about CPG products in particular, you're saying, oh, let's start with D2C. This is a way to you know, get firsthand feedback, test, scale things up, see how things are working. Then we can move to Amazon where it's still being sold online, but it's like one step removed. And then we can get, you know, make the jumps to marketplaces and retail. I think that's a really smart and cool way to really simplify that thought process. And then when you were uh, launching your first batch, like, how'd you do that? Was it just, were you guys just running like ads on, you know, Facebook or wh- where, where were you doing it? Where'd you acquire that for, call it your first hundred orders? Like where, where'd they come from? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, probably friends and family because we gave them all a sneak freak. <laughs> so I would say the first hundred, probably, you know, those were the folks that we knew were going to buy. I would say the ones that were one step removed and not actually my mom buying them off an email list was a combination of press and organic social. We did not scale any ads. We had like some minimum stuff that we were just using for pure testing, but I wasn't running like conversion optimized landing pages or doing a ton of lead gen. It was really more for creative and messaging testing. So the really the other aspects are on that social and organic and community building side. We work with Kendall Dickinson on all of, she's our head of social for both brands and all the brands to come. She helped us build like a really strong social strategy that sort of dives in from the beginning um, of building brand, even when you have, you know, 14 followers and it's my mom and all her friends, um, you know, and sort of understanding how you can scale that quickly without losing the validity of the brand voice. And then we, like I said, you know, with GUI, because we had sort of like a tech press, we, we launched GUI and Starday at the same time. So we were featured in some of these like business articles and tech news and like not your classic food launch places, like TechCrunch doesn't usually cover food. <laughs> so we actually, but TechCrunch also has great distribution. So we actually got a lot of sales from kind of uh, places of PR that you might not have expected. And then as we started to grow and, and settle, we certainly, you know, the paid social, the organic on TikTok, still waiting to go viral, but one day we'll get there. I would say we're big. We did a fair amount of site testing. Um, we work with a platform called IntelliGems, which helps us run a bunch of A-B testing on, on our platforms and start to do some some shipping threshold. Another thing that surprised me, like I said, shipping so expensive. And then also, you know, as we've kind of gotten to some evergreen content, both across organic and paid, start to lean into what we we know was working um, based off some of our tests, and you know, figured out communities that were particularly receptive, and figuring out the messaging that works for them. So. One of the things, for example, we always talk about is dairy-free performs a lot better than vegan on a lot of our messaging. If something's vegan, it's dairy-free, right? But so you would think <laughs> that just sort of generally, if someone's looking for dairy-free and they see vegan, they're equally as excited, but that is not the case. And so we were able to really test into specific niches and figure out, okay, this type of community, we should be talking about, about the vegan. This one, we should be talking about low sugar. This one, we should be talking about no palm oil. This one, we should be talking about no dairy. So that part sort of like led us back into that moving from the 100, 200, 300, 400, and then scaling up to, you know, more consistent. Yeah, no, no, that, that's super helpful. And I'm, and I'm sure like a lot of the listeners who are maybe in that really early stage, I know you were just talking about how you were thinking about, you know, like at a certain point, uh, you're starting your so- social pages, it's just your friends and family, maybe there's only 14 people in there. 
Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what your game plan or how you guys thought about like slowly like prepping and priming that your organic channels? Yeah. I mean, I can't not take credit for all of Kendall's work. She is the brains behind a lot of this. Um, but I can speak to sort of the general strategy as well, sort of how I think about it, which is one, the demands for brands on digital right now it is not enough to just be on a platform. You have to look good and you have to sound good. And there's, and it's, you know, I think something that a lot of brands that I've advised and have sort of seen popping up, they have amazing products, but their creative isn't greater. Their socials being run like it's a B2B account. Um, the voice doesn't sound authentic. Uh, they don't include memes or things that are viral. And so it doesn't feel like an account people want to follow for fun. Our idea was always, you know, you can post your a picture of your product every day, every week, but no one's going to want to follow you. And frankly, in a world where a lot of people are very specific about who many, how many people they're following on Instagram, you do actually have to prove your value. So I think Kendall did a great job of sort of making sure that our initial setup and then also as we've gone along has never been overly product focused or overly about ourselves or not in the moment. We want to make sure that we are celebrating the brand voice and then also the community that's part of it. For GUI, that is GUI's a little bit more fun and lighthearted and silly and goofy in a way. So you're going to see more things like memes or oopsies or uh, bloopers. Um, whereas all day is really more about like the art of cooking, whether you're a home chef or a foodie or, you know, a microwave chef, which we have plenty of people that buy all day that are more the microwave chef. And so that's going to be more of a food porn showing like how the product's being used, um, different recipes, things like that. Gooey, it's his own chocolate spread. Yes, we have some amazing recipes and you should totally check them out our Instagram channels, but no one really needs to be told how to spread gooey on a piece of toast to get started <laughs> using gooey. All day is seasoning blends, right? And so there's a little bit more of an education that goes there. So I think diving into like what feels authentic and is authentic about each brand and then understanding what folks are looking for out of your account. And, you know, you don't want to overly cater just to the whims of whoever you think is, is looking at your organic content, but you do want to understand that, you know, being on social, you're, you're there. And it's just like having a website, like you are still there to sell and what you're selling may not be, you know, pushing product immediately, but you are still selling the vision and the strategy and who the brand is as a voice it's something I think a lot about, especially when we go into retail, you know, you look at brands that are really successful in retail, especially some of the older brands, and they have like almost no social presence, or they're really minimal. And then there are other brands that do it really well, Oreos, for example, like, they crush on social, Auntie Anne's crushes, you know, and it's something where, you know, I'm actually more likely probably to go buy Auntie Anne's. I know I say it improperly. So for everyone's listening, Auntie Anne's, I know, I can't help myself. But I'm more likely actually to be excited to go get some of that, not it's not a directly attributed sale, but just because I enjoy watching their content, if I walk by, I get like good feelings about it. And so I think a lot of folks think about social and organic very much in that, like pushing DTC and pushing that sort of, you know, direct, make sure your Shopify pages are linked and did your influencer have the right code and make sure it's swipe up and all that stuff. And that is all very important. And I'm a growth person. So obviously I will always be orienting towards those things, but I think it's just as important for, you know, you do create an authentic brand or hire someone. It's a really hard thing to do. Hire someone who's good at it. I am not good at it. Social is very hard for me to do. Kendall is amazing at it. I always tell her, I know it looks good, but I don't know how to get there. So, you know, for folks that are listening that maybe don't have amazing <laughs> social skills like me, there are plenty of people out there that are really good at it. So I would recommend investing in it, you know, whether you're a DTC 
or Amazon, or if you're sort of a small local retail, I think the sort of the returns on it are kind of hard to describe. Cool and actionable. I really appreciate that insight. And then, you know, as we get close to wrapping up here, I guess my last question is, uh, I know you mentioned you have a couple more brands in the works this year coming up, but what else is on your mind these days? And what are the plans for you guys over the next, uh, you know, year or two years as we look down the line? Yeah, so, you know, we'll continue to, we launched two brands last year, and we will continue to up that velocity, um, sort of as we become more efficient, as our team grows, um, as our data models, you know, continue to do their thing. And as we, frankly, just learn from our mistakes going forward, but so I'm very excited about that. I think we've got, I can't share all the <laughs> products we have because I think my team would kill me, but we've got some really great products that I think we feel really strongly about and feel like they're meeting some really strong con- consumer need that will be launching, you know, in the next three to 12 months. I'm staying as vague as possible, I guess. Um, the other thing we're really excited about is our retail strategy. So we've got some pretty exciting news coming out um, in the next few weeks. And one of the things I'm focused on day in and day out is, you know, beyond some of like the digital stuff where I've spent a lot of time in the past is, what does it mean to be successful in retail? How do we get that sell through? And how do we get that velocity? And how do we take some of these software driven marketing and growth principles and apply them to a uh, slightly more old school industry? You talked a little bit about how we're taking this approach of applying sort of building like a software company and taking and and doing all those things. And we have, we can control that at a certain level across DTC and to some extent marketplaces and Amazon, but being in retail and in store is, is a whole different ball game with a whole different set of technology or lack thereof. And so I'm really interested in seeing how we can combine some more modern or some more um, techniques that have not te- uh, been used in the past to drive in-store success and how we can apply those in a cost-efficient manner as we, you know, do national rollouts. You know, that's amazing. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure our listeners did as well. I think it was super insightful about how you guys are approaching this. It is definitely really unique, launching not just one brand, but multiple brands and keeping that rolling. And then, you know, moving as you move from D to C to Amazon across marketplaces and into retail. Some really exciting stuff coming up for you guys in Starday. So um, for our listeners, where can they connect with you? Um, are you on Twitter, LinkedIn? What are your What are the social yeah, channels? I'm on both. <laughs> we'll say there are two Caroline McCarthy's out there, so make sure you... <laughs> I feel bad for the other one because she often gets messages that are meant for me and vice versa. Um, but I'm on LinkedIn at Caroline Starday, so that's pretty easy. Um, you can also find me, I'm just Caroline at stardayfoods.com, and then I'm on Twitter at Carol McCarthy. Sweet. Well, really enjoy the chat. So happy you were able to join us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me.